Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Bright Lights. Comes to you live every Wednesday from our studios here in North Minneapolis. And as usual, another great blessed day in the hood. Uh, we're glad to come to you today. We got a special guest today. All our guests are special. But uh, I have a guest today who's uh, spent a lot of time and achieved a lot of things in the uh, music industry and just the people that he's worked with, the things that he's done, the various things that he's done. I think it's going to be very uh, interesting to our audience. And as our audience know that that's what we focus on is achievement and achievers. And these achievers are bright lights. And uh, our basic, one of our basic premises, instead of cursing the darkness, we're going to light a candle and all of our guests, uh, these candles that we're lighting, uh, we believe uh, that uh, you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to uh, do what it takes to do it and willing to be disciplined and sacrifice and things like that. So if you're coming to uh, hear a lot of complaining about how unfair life is and uh, what happened to us and how people treat us, this is not the place to come but if you got a purpose or goals in life and you want to know how to achieve them this is the place to be bright lights every wednesday uh 7 p.m central time now before we get started remember to go out to my website lasajohnson.com uh subscribe click the notification button so you can get new contents every time we drop it uh, go to our online store, uh, donate to the podcast, and just support us if you like what we're doing. Of course, you know, I'm a capitalist and a free enterprise person. If you don't like what we're doing, we don't expect for you to support us. So uh, so keep that in mind as you go out and take a look at the LasaJohnson.com. Now, my little, I normally uh, start off the podcast with some things that's happened during the week. But let's go back to last week where I mentioned something I had seen for a while in my life, a first, and that was when God was spelled in lower case. And uh, I mentioned the fact that since we've evolved, I consider evolved, to believe in uh, monotheism, which is one God, I had never seen reference to a one God, monotheistic God, spelled in lowercase so that just kind of caught my attention and i think it's a sign of where we're going uh as a country so once again this week i'm going to start off with the first and uh, we'll go from there and i'd like to connect things and then get our guest on here uh another first this week for me is i actually sat through a whole commercial on youtube and uh I don't like commercials. I'm, as you know, I'm, I can't wait till the skip ads uh, uh, opportunity to come. Uh, every once in a while, uh, a company will run a series of commercials that I kind of like and enjoy. But for the most part, I don't have time for them. Uh, this is Sports Center. That commercials that they would uh, run that series of commercials. I love those. Uh, some of the insurance Geico insurance company got some I like, but for the most part, I stay away from commercials now. Let me hurry up through this. The reason I this is a commercial caught my attention. First of all, it looked different. It was kind of witty. And then they got into talking about uh, the cancel culture, 
the woke uh, community. And uh, basically uh, what is happening, this guy, Jeremy, it's called Jeremy's Razors, I think. And I'm sitting listening to this stuff, and it just gets kind of interesting the way he's putting it on, and it's witty. And bottom line, what it boils down to this young man, I guess, Oven, I think he's in England, started his own razor company because Harry Razors, the, his competition, basically canceled somebody for expressing the opinion they didn't like. And it was kind of like the whole Will Smith, Jada Pinkett, Chris uh, Rock thing, where when you saw what why they were canceling the guy, it was just the comment that he made I thought wasn't worth the canceling. And this is the most important part, though. So what they're saying is, given the current state of things, that it's perhaps time for us to go into two different economies. And we'll have one economy uh, kind of like left liberal economy and one economy kind of conservative uh, right economy. And uh, they are each uh, have, because what's happening now is that if you say the wrong thing, they want to fire you. They want to run you out of business. And I think that's totally, uh, it's un-American to me. We, America, we're supposed to be bigger and better than that. And so right now they're talking about coming up with two different economies. And if they do, I want you to know that I want to be in the economy uh, that's free enterprise capitalism. I don't want to be in the social economy of socialism. I want to be in an economy of individual control and freedom. I don't want to be in an economy associated with government control and mandates. I want to uh, be associated with an economy where people have to actually work for what they get. There are no uh, uh, entitlement. And I want to be part of an economy where people can actually express their opinions and things and not have their livelihood uh, uh, threatened or canceled because of, of an opinion. And I've said before, uh, my uh, attitude towards these things, look, uh, I, th I just believe in free speech. I don't believe in censorship. I believe that people should be able to say whatever they want without being canceled as long as they're not breaking the law. I don't think we have a right not to be offended. I, I think sometimes we need to be offended, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And so I, I just have a, a very uh, serious concerns about, especially our big tech and social media, uh, just canceling people because they say something unpopular or even uh, insensitive. I don't think you should be canceled for that. And so along those lines, um, another thing in the news today, Elon Musk, uh, the uh, I, I consider him brilliant, techie guy, entrepreneur, uh, he just bought, I think, a 9% stake in Twitter. Uh, and Elon Musk, uh, I share a lot of his opinion. He shares a lot of my opinions about the current cancel culture and why we're censoring people. And so I think he's planning on uh, making some impact uh, in Twitter, canceling people and hiding information and censoring people. And hopefully this will catch fire on the rest of the big tech because they all do it. Uh, not only Twitter, uh, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook. If they don't like what you're saying, they just censor you and shut you down. And uh, I think uh, the strength of America is freedom of speech. And I think the whole freedom of speech uh, is not for popular ideas and popular speech. 
if it was about popular ideas and popular speech, we would need a constitution protection, protection dealing with freedom of speech. And so that's where I am at, on that. I hope he's uh, very successful uh, in what he's doing and hopefully we can appreciate uh, this country for what it is and we can start coming together and stop canceling people and censoring people because we disagree with them. Stop being like Senator Joseph McCarthy was back in the 50s where uh, if he didn't like you or he thought you were a threat, people actually lost their jobs and you never heard from them again. Now, he was what they considered a right winger. The ironic part right now is the left wingers and the woke people that's doing that and canceling people. So uh, I will end it with this uh, because, you know, it rem the, our current situation, and I've said I'm a fan of uh, world wars and all the wars America been in, just study them in Civil War. But I just remember in the Civil War documentary, Abraham Lincoln said something, and I'm 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 a, I'm, a, I'm going to quote it. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna make sure I get this quote right because this is what it reminds me. And he was talking about uh, America and the division we had during the Civil War, and he basically said that's the only way uh, we're gonna be defeated. That we we become we we're we're house divided. And this is his quote. I I, I just love this. Uh, from whence shall we expect to approach a danger? Shall some transatlantic military giant step the earth and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe and Asia could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track on the Blue Ridge in the trial of a thousand years. No, and this is the important part, if destruction be our lot, we must we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we will live forever or die by suicide. And that's the way of stating another biblical uh, proverb that says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every house or city divided against itself will not stand. And I, I ask that all Americans remember that uh, when we are making these self-righteous uh, judgments against other people because of what they say or their beliefs. So anyway, that's enough of that. Uh, let's uh, start cherishing free speech. Uh, from the people that we do not agree with as well as the people we do agree with. And the easiest thing in the world, one of the easiest things in the world, I think, to be is to say your principle until it costs you, until there's a price to pay, or until that principle that you cherish must be applied to someone you don't like. And that's a lot of what I see of coming from so-called principled people nowadays. And as a country, we can and we will do better. Now, uh, look like we're having some technical issues here. I love live broadcasts. Okay. Uh, we uh, we have our guest here. We have a connection issue with uh, our guest, LaSalle Gabriel. So they're, they're telling me to, to keep improvising here. So uh, Easter's coming up. We talked about that. Uh, I, I've... I've had uh, my mission was to go to the 
local meat market and buy some stuff for Easter. And I've done that. Uh, and I'm just looking forward to celebrating that. Those of you who are subscribers uh, to the Lacey Johnson podcast, you will get a, a newsletter this week that uh, tells you of some of my memories of Easter and how it has an impact on my life, uh, how uh, just being a follower of the teachers of Jesus has uh, just, I haven't had a bad day in my life, and people find that hard to believe. Uh, I don't do fear. I don't do intimidation. I don't do stress. I don't do worry. And that's what it has done for me. But we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, sometimes uh, when people have problems with the religion, uh, I say, well, rather than think of it as a religion, why don't we think of it as a philosophy and just really read what's being said there? Okay, I see we have my man here. I'm looking at my a studio engineer. He's giving me the thumbs up. So I'm going to give you, my audience, the thumbs up. Give our guests the thumbs up and bring him on. Uh, LaSalle Gabriel. Uh, well, he's just a music man. That's what I got him down in my contact list as the music man. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, LaSalle. How you doing, Lacey? I'm doing great. All right. Well, good to see you again. I, you know, a lot of t we met. Actually, we met at a banquet and we just start a conversation. You sit next to people and he's sitting there. And actually, I thought he was kind of a quiet, shy kind of guy until we start talking about music. And then his it's almost like he did a Michael Jackson personality change once he got on the stage. So we've we've had some uh, some conversation. I've been out to a studio and witnessed some of the things. So we're going to get into that a little later and all the people that he's worked with, all the great things he's done. I, I, I told him I was I was just only a, a first trombone uh, in the high school band. And being in the band, I know people who are, are uh, have the gift from God versus those of us like me who just had to work our butts off to keep up with them. So uh, this guy seemed like he has the gift. So let's let's start at the very basic, uh, LaSalle. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born at, uh, about growing up, your work ethics, childhood memories, and things like that. Tell us where LaSalle Gabriel is from and uh, a little bit about his experience growing up. I am from Detroit, Michigan, the Motor City, uh, from a family of five. My father was a real estate developer and also a uh, classically trained trumpet player. My mother was a gospel singer. And then I have two brothers, uh, one of which was um, Michael Jackson's bass player for the last 10 years of his life and also appears in uh, the film This Is It. And my other brother is a minister. And... Uh, Came to Minnesota, early 90s, studied during session work for Jam and Lewis and Prince, and then things just took off from there. So when you came to Minnesota, uh, was it because someone knew who you were and they reached out to you and made a job offer? Uh, you were just saying, that's fertile ground for me. I got to go there. How did that, How did exactly how did that uh, take place? I was on tour with another artist in Coralville, Iowa, and we were at a gas station and I saw one of those city page magazines. I picked it up and looked inside and there was audition being held for a new guitar player for a group that Prince had produced called Maserati. Mm -hmm. So I came here for, for the audition and the group, I, I won the audition, but the group fell apart. 
but I was here for about 10 days and between Jam and Lewis and Prince and all the other, you know, heavy hitters in the music community in the Twin Cities, I made about $15,000 in the first 10 days. And John Bream did a big story on me in Star, Star Tribune, which was great. So I said, wow, you know what? This was easy money with no work. You know, I just kind of showed up. So, you know, when things happen there, I figure you have favors. So I stayed here for a while. Now, uh, you mentioned your father was a classical trumpet, trumpeter, 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 right? Uh, yes. And I'm assuming that's where you got some of your uh, musical IQ from. Uh, did you uh, go to some of his concert? Did, did you just listen to him around the house? What got you personally interested in music? Well, he practiced 90 minutes a day, seven days a week. And on, then on Sundays, I heard him play in the church choir. And then, we, you know, we attended the Church of God in Christ. And so we went to church all day. You have three services in the morning and one in the evening. So he played trumpet in all three, all four. And then, you know, he uh, bought me a trumpet, and I started taking trumpet lessons in the third grade. Yeah. But um, as, as time progressed, I, I switched to the guitar. But I maintained my profile with the trumpet all through the end of high school. Uh, it's not easy switching from instrument to instrument unless you are gifted. Uh, so tell me, so you come here. Uh, you're playing for uh, uh, guitar, lead guitar, by the way, uh, for all these uh, known, well-known artists. Uh, tell me about You brought your family with you, I'm assuming. Uh, no, I had, didn't have a family yet. Aha, good. So you actually met your wife here in the Twin Cities or while you were here? Okay, okay. I did. Uh, well, you mind sharing us how you met your wife, uh, LaSalle? Uh, I was in a recording session in Minnetonka, and I was waiting for the previous session to finish. And she was singing background vocals uh, there. And I said, wow, who is that girl? I said, oh, that's uh, Deanna Cool from KMLJ. She's the uh, DJ there. And I said, I need to meet her. So I um, introduced myself. And then sometime prior to that, though, I, I had met her at the Black Music Awards at the Northrop Auditorium. She was doing um, uh, celebrity interviews on the red carpet. And I, I went, up to, went up to Pete Rhodes and I said, who is that? And he told me the same thing. I said, well, I need to meet her. So I just kept running into her everywhere. Okay, so yeah, you mentioned a lot of names here that are uh, familiar to all, all of us. Uh, Pete Rhodes, Shed G. I'm trying to remember the, the DJ that you're talking about. But if, as we fast forward, uh, I was out at your studio earlier this week just to see how things go, and I told you I noticed that uh, two of your uh, children were there and actively participating. So how many, well, first of all, how long have you been married, uh, LaSalle? 23 years, four children, Okay, and they're and, all musically gifted. Yeah, uh, and that's great. And by the way, your brother is in that, that in the Michael Jackson documentary, you said, right? Yeah, his name is Alex Al. He's one of the top bass players in the industry right now. He's worked with everybody from Herbie Hancock to Michael Jackson. You know, so yeah. Guy. So looking over your uh, achievement in the music industry, seems like you've done quite a few things, uh, all genres of music. So let's pick that apart. 
a little bit. And I confess to you, and I confess to my audience, I've been blessed to be able to pick up just about anything I want to do in life. I really have. But the two things that I've struggled with that comes to mind, uh, one is golf, and the other one is playing the guitar. And uh, my youngest son, at when he reached teenage years, I think it was, he asked me to buy him a couple of turntables. And me being kind of like a musician kind of thing, I'm like, instead of buying him turntables, I'm going to buy him this electric guitar. And I regret that, by the way. I regret not buying him those turntables. Of course, he did not uh, take up the ele uh, electric guitar. And I decided I was going to try this. Hey, I know a little bit about music. I bombed at it. And I don't see myself ever getting uh, good at either the electric guitar or golf. And not that I don't, I don't believe I can. It's just that at this stage in life, your values kind of change and you got to, uh, uh, other priorities. So how difficult or easy was it for you to just play the uh, uh, guitar and pick it up and start playing it? At least a treble guitar, I call it. Well, I, I started out playing the bass oh, okay. at around age 10, age 11. Then when I started going out on auditions for you know bands playing in nightclubs, and I would get those jobs. But I noticed that the uh, guitar player and the lead singer got all the girls. So I said, this bass thing is over. So I, I got myself a guitar, had a paper out, bought a really nice guitar, and I started practicing. And my mother used to have me listen to the um, black radio stations where I could hear all the hit records. And that's, she really ushered me through the ability to play rhythm guitar in any genre because she'd have the radio station on and then she would just switch to another radio station. And the thing was, I had to have the song down pat by the time it was over. So with a lot of the Motown songs, uh, those rhythm section guitar parts were very challenging because those were jazz guitarists playing funk and playing R&B. They were very accomplished, you know, artists, the Funk Brothers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just something that I continued to do, play mostly by ear, but then I had a lot of theory that I was learning on the trumpet from uh, third grade to 12th grade. So I had those two merged together and that helped me to develop my ear and all the things I needed to do to be able to you know, go on a gig. Cause you know what? I've never played any session with a lead sheet. You know, they'll bring a lead no. sheet out right. and I'll say, well, can I try the song out first? See if I can come up with something that you like. And if I don't come up with something you like, then I'll play your your uh, music sheet here, but I've never had someone prefer what they wrote for me to play when I read. Well, uh, you, you mentioned all kinds of things that impressed me about a musician and that I, I struggled to quite understand. One is uh, just uh, playing by ear. I mean, I'm just amazed at guys who can just play by ear. And well, that's secondly, a gift. That's a gift. Uh, yeah, it, it gotta be. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you how they do it, but they do it. And then the second part, and I mentioned this to you, I always need the sheet music. Uh, it's very. I don't think I could ever play a whole song without having the sheet music in front of me. Uh, but there's, I there's an advantage to that for horns, though. With mm -hmm. horns, you want sheet music because there's too many guys to, to, for them to just you know wing it. Right, right. So okay, with, gotcha. With with horns, with singers, and maybe the piano player, you should have definitely have charts. So you, otherwise, you're going to have, you know, 
right, just right. chaos. Right. The guitar player, the bass player, they can kind of, you hired them for what they do on other records. So when I played on Sounds of Blackness, uh, first album, Africa to America, which won a Grammy back in 91, then Low Key hired me because of my work on that album to play on I Got a Thing for You from their album, which was the number one song. And then uh, DJ Quick hired me because of, you know, the work I did with, um, you know, the previous track. So it kind of snowballs. You can find yourself in a situation where in a 45-day period, you can play on six hit records all because of your previous success. Right. But what amazes me when I watch concerts, no one in the band seemed to have sheet music. And, and, and what I'm saying, and you can appreciate this, and I know if they bring in orchestras and things, they got strings. Most of the time, they have sheet music, but you you, you can appreciate some of those songs arrangements are very, very intricate. And I'm like, they're remembering all this stuff, but maybe you can yes, because give the me rehearsals insight. for mm -hmm. any if you, anything for like the Grammys or the American Music Awards or the Oscars, all of those um, presentations have charts, but then they've been rehearsed within the ends of their lives prior to that. So you know the song by ear, but you have the chart there just in case. Just in case. Okay, and we'll explore that some more. Let's get on into some of the great things that you've done here. Now, somewhere I read where you had 70 consecutive weeks in the top 40 of five billboard charts. Explain that to our audience, and I, I know what that means, but maybe explain that to our audience for those who uh, don't follow the music industry and charts and things that much. Well, from 2005 to 2007, I appeared to have the Midas touch. I had just purchased flight time from Jimmy Jam and Terry, Terry Lewis for $2.7 And then I signed a distribution deal with Warner Brothers. Then I signed Sounds of Blackness all in about an 18-week period. Then I released the Sounds of Blackness first record. It was top 10 first week. Mm -hmm. Then there was a country and western record that I had performed and wrote on for Dean Justin. That crossed over pop at number 28, went to number four country. Then there was a rock project I did for a group called The J Project. That was top 20. So basically, over the course of 16 weeks, I had produced and written five different songs, all of which made the top 40 in their perspective genres. And, this and that song, lasted for 77 weeks. Wow. And also, and you, you talked about this, you've spanned quite a few genres, uh, R&B, gospel, I heard country. Am I missing any other genre that you've worked in? Well, I have an unreleased project that I produced with um, Winton and Brandon Marcellus and Delfeo Marcellus and uh, with Elvin Jones. That's a straight ahead traditional jazz project that has not been released as of yet. Um, but I would say my my bread and butter has been rock, gospel, R&B and dance. And now I want to branch out into uh, doing more of the traditional jazz and then I also want to end up doing some type of orchestral work, something like you know, the James Bond type soundtracks. Mm. 
Okay. That's that's getting into what we call the high cotton uh, down south, but you're from Detroit and Minnesota. You might not know much about that phraseology. Uh, so you've had uh, quite a few awards also. Uh, let's say, uh, tell us about some of these awards that you've won for your achievement in music. Well, the two Grammys and Stellar Award are for three separate projects I did with Sounds of Blackness from 91 through 2006. And uh, I've been written up in about 300 issues of Billboard magazine. So, I mean, my career really is in the second phase. I'm getting ready to do a lot more projects, starting a new record label, a new uh, production company. You know, it's, it's working out pretty good. So given everything you've done from musician to uh, co-writing, arranging, uh, and we'll talk about the business part in a little bit. Do you have um, a favorite uh, when you look back over your career? Is that one area that you uh, enjoy more than the other? I, I would say the gospel work I find the most fulfilling because those are the best singers right. oh, and, yeah, uh-huh. the be- and the best musicians. Um, the, the rock projects and the country are also challenging because the guitar work has to be stellar. But I enjoy all of it. I just like working with good musicians and good record labels and good promoters and good marketing teams, people who are dedicated to excellence, great mix artists. You know, we do a lot of work with Mark Needham. He's one of the top five mix engineers in the United States. It's had 13 Grammy nominations. So I like working with people that are at the top of their game. And the genre doesn't really matter. But if I had, if someone's going to pay me $100,000 to produce an unknown act, I would want it to be gospel. Because someone like an Ann Nesby, they just put your lights out. I mean, you enjoy the music. You feel the passion and the spiritual stimulation of what the artist is bringing forth on the track. And it's fantastic. Well, I'm going to throw a novice kind of uh, curveball at you in this interview. Uh, I've studied a little bit of classical music, the Mozarts and the Beethovens and the Bronze and the Waltzes and things like that. This is where I'm going. When I listen to classical music and I know all the theory and stuff behind it and things like that, and then I listen to Motown, I've come to the personal opinion you can't get any better than Motown <laughs> and, and, and the Folk Brothers. I, I mean, I think well, they are. Know, yeah, go ahead. Th- those gentlemen are the most talented rhythm section musicians in music history. Uh, the work that, I mean, Barry Gordy had this concept where he wanted established high-end jazz players, the horn players, the drummers, the piano um, the, the, you know, the guitars. He wanted jazz musicians, guys that could play anything you could possibly imagine for them to play. They could get it for you in 20 seconds. And then beyond that, if you just let them loose with the beat, they would come up with things that you didn't even anticipate writing on your own. So those were stellar musicians. We don't see a lot of that right now. I think a lot of the work that Bruno Mars is doing has been fantastic with uh, bringing live music back. A lot of the projects that I'm going to be working on going forward will have live rhythm sections as well. Well, you mentioned Bruno Mars 
And um, I was mentioning to you earlier that most of the uh, musician artists or whatever I see on the Grammys, I've never heard of them before in my life. And that's because I guess I don't listen to a radio. But you mentioned Bruno Mars. Are there any modern uh, artists that we would recognize that name? Uh, any other artists like that that really you look at and you say, that person's pretty dang good, and I really like the work as, that they do? As far as recording artists are concerned, I would say, and then keep in mind that he won uh, two of the major Grammys uh, a couple weeks ago for his work with um, Anderson Peck. Um, he is the best in the business, period. You know, in terms of, you can tell he's there's no uh, vocal steroids being used to help him complete what you hear him sing. You mean That's Bruno? We're talking to Bruno, right? Absolutely. Okay, and, good. good. Uh -huh. many people, and many people don't realize that he plays most of the instruments. He's playing the drums. He's playing the keyboards. He brings in a bass player and a guitar player, but he's an amazing drummer. So that that guy... He's the best in the business right now. He almost sounds like uh, today's prince. You know, he'll get, do all well, that. You know, stuff. He, he is in the same spiritual lineup of a prince. But Prince is by far the greatest musician of all time. Yeah. Uh, in, in music history. So there's no one that's going to be able to sing like that, dance like that, play guitar, play bass, write the song, produce the song. I mean, it's really unmatched. We're never going to see that in our lifetime. Yeah, and, and I'm quite sure I can go here with you because uh, you, you probably saw the performance he did at the Music Hall of Fame with all the other guitarists. I forgot. Weeping. I did. What was the name of that song he was playing, by the way? Um, Weeping. Uh, I forgot his exact As name. Something Gently Weeps. Yeah, yeah. As just Gently Weeps, yeah. But I saw that performance, and I that was the first time I realized. Yeah. First time I realized how good he was, and that's what separated him from a lot of other people, uh, uh, other contemporaries. Uh, so you mentioned a, a phrase there that caught my attention, vocal steroids, I think is the phrase that you used. And just hearing that phrase makes me think that there's some things going on with people's voices and maybe it's technology that's making them sound better. What, uh, basically well, what I'm getting um, at, let's, let's is what, what the heck is vocal steroids? <laughs> well, it's a known fact that 90% of the artists on the Billboard charts have some kind of additives added to their voice. They, they can change the color of their voice. They can change pitch problems in what they're singing. I mean, what the software will do now is right. really out of control. I mean, it used to be one thing. These things were designed to be um, a producer's sidecar additive to help an artist cross the finish line. But now they're using it live. You have artists oh. coming down at U.S. Bank Stadium and they're singing through Pro Tools or the Pro Tools tracks are playing in the background. But at the same time, the auto-tune or Melodyne is also being used to help alter what you hear in the $150 seat you paid for. Oh, I can believe that. Uh, one great thing about the old days, and, men, and some of these artists we'll talk about in a little bit that you've actually worked with. When you went to hear Marvin Gaye live, 
He sounded like Marvin Gaye on the album. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Aretha Franklin, a Patti LaBelle, a Ray Charles, or even James Brown. When you went to hear them live, they sounded like they did on the album. And now that you mentioned that, I'm going to pick an artist today, and I'm going to go look at listen to one. But you say they already they got it built into their live performances now, also, right? Yes, they do. Uh, that's too bad. But I can't do. And that. And it's ninety percent of the industry, so. I don't have to pick out any names. Just but right, 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 right. And well, uh, let's say I gotta ask you this: Do you use make use of that? Uh, 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 would we you absolutely, be re- you we have absolutely to. do not allow artists oh. to a sing parts of a song, although repetitive, in other parts of the four minute presentation to skip. Say, so, oh, I, I sang that eight bar chorus once. Can't you just copy it and? Paste oh, yeah, it somewhere right. else. We don't allow that to take place in our studio. Uh, we don't allow anybody to do anything. And we don't use auto-tune on anything. My my logic is if you need auto-tune, I should, you shouldn't be in my studio. Right, right. I mean, I'm looking for singers, not, you know, people who can be can sound like singers. Now, we've had people come in. They'll say, oh, Mr. Gabriel, like for you, I got this song. I want you to finish it for me. And I'll listen to it and say, well, you know, it's not bad. Um, can I hear you sing it? And they can't sing their own songs that they wrote. Wow. They can sing maybe the first 90 seconds, but that's about it. Well, I can say the young lady that you had singing on Saturday, uh, I could tell it was her own voice, and she didn't need any help with that. So I, I can see well, that. Alex, uh-huh. Alex is a wonder kind. Yeah, she's, she, uh, she's from Minnesota, but uh, we discovered her while she was attending a uh, prestigious uh, music university in Nashville. And she's just a phenomenal singer. She can sing anything. She's a great songwriter. And we think the group that she and I have worked hard to put together over the last six months is going to have a a great impact on the industry because all the music is live musicians and all the singing is live singing. Wow. And so we've been stepping through all the things that you've achieved in this industry. And heads up, uh, I'm going to want some inside stories here uh, sure. sometime before, <laughs> before this interview because you work with such great people. But before we go there, let's touch on a couple of other areas uh, that you have experience in and that you've achieved in. Uh, I saw somewhere where you had done some film work. Uh, what are some of the films that you've worked on, Alessia? I've worked as a post-production supervisor for Paramount Domestic Television Stars, Cable Network, and also Showtime, four different projects, actually five now, I just finished another one. And then I've done uh, songwriting for Days of Our Lives Soap Opera, back in the early stages of my career in the early 90s. I was a ghostwriter for them. You know, some of these, uh, for lack of a better term, cheesy parts of a soap opera where a guy starts singing to his love interest. I used to do that kind of music. Tremendously lucrative. But uh, I just got to a point where I've started to overproduce the songs. It was supposed to sound like, you know, Danny obviously could have sung this song in his living room. And you don't want to think about how well it's produced. But I started giving them more and more elaborate productions with horns and strings. I said, oh, maybe it's time for you to stop working in television and going to music. So I take that as a good suggestion. Well, I'll follow up on that. You mentioned 
earlier that you had uh, purchased Flight Time Studios. And I remember when uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis first started talking about moving to L.A., which I, I didn't like. I liked the fact that they were here in Minnesota and they weren't out there with the rest of the crowd and stuff like that. But I remember when they first started talking about moving to California, that they that's one of the considerations was they wanted to do more film work and Hollywood-type work. Uh, the reason they have to be there is because of the networking and that's your business and it's better you be there. It's something they couldn't have done from Minnesota. Uh, how does that, how does that whole industry work uh, as far as getting in on some of the movies and televisions? Well, I mean, these are the two most celebrated producers, songwriters of the last half century. So I kind of believe they could have been in Omaha, Nebraska and still done the same body of work. I have no idea what their body of work has been in TV and film and for commercials and so on and so forth. It's just hard to know. But being in Hollywood does make it easier because you have more bites at the apple, more people to talk to. Whereas in Minnesota, you have to create your own um, your own success from scratch. Yeah. And I'm assuming there's a lot of Hollywood parties and things. A lot of times that's how you make your connections and Absolutely. give me a call tomorrow. Uh, and I'm going to look up and see what how, how well they're doing out there. I know we miss them here. Uh, I know Jimmy Jam. I, in fact, I once, well, I, I live next to Jimmy Jam's dad, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I once met him a couple of times and a great guy. I like the fact that him and Terry Lewis, uh, they say they never, uh, all that, they had handshake agreements on everything and they're still friends and that doesn't last long, I'm assuming, in this business. So let's transition a little bit, talking about business, to LaSalle Gabriel, the music businessman entrepreneur. Now, uh, I read somewhere where you had your own label or you still have your own label uh back in i think it was 2009 i think but i i, I don't remember things as much as i used to when in my younger days but you had your own label uh a few years ago am i not correct in that well i started out in 2000 2001 with a strategic partnership with ibm for seven million dollars which was the first of its type for an african-american in their 100 year history then I parlayed that into um, buying a studio. And I started out trying to buy Paisley Park. Prince was selling the building, uh, wanted $15 million. We came in, we offered him 3.7. He came down to 12, we came up to five, he came up to 10, we came up to seven. But then for about four months, we just couldn't close the deal. Then when the opportunity came to buy flight time, we, we jumped on it. Uh, we paid Jam and Lewis $2.7 million and then sold the building to another investment group for $7 million the same day. That's not a bad uh, profit or ROI within Not at all. Hours. So then we used that money to start the record label. And then we had a, um, had a lot of hit records. Uh, that company, I would say, from... 2003 to 2007 grossed over 13 million dollars with a pre-tax profit margin of about 60 percent so Sound it's very like lucrative it. so mm -hmm. so i i try to keep my foot on the music side and the business side 
the family business for me, going all the way back to 1906 in Texas. My grandfather, my father, my great-grandfather were all in the real estate development. So I used to go to, uh, my father used to take me to work with him on Saturdays. I'd get dressed up in my suit. I think I was about 10 or 11. And he would take me all day to all of his meetings from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And I kind of feel that that's where I learned, you know, I learned the real estate business through him by just sitting at his shoulder, listening to his negotiations and um, processes that he had to go through to complete a deal. Now, I wasn't good at that in the 80s. I, I found it boring. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, I found it useful that I have that knowledge and that allowed me to maximize opportunities to create more return on investment for my investments, investors. Well, you mentioned one area. Well, I'm curious about everything, but one area of uh, the music industry that I've always been curious about is the whole area of distribution. And you said you had a distribution deal, you know, a novice on the outside looking in, we would think that if you make good music, uh, just about anybody can distribute it for you. But once again, I'm quite sure it doesn't work that way. And we look to look at movie distribution, but the whole field of distribution, is it, uh, you have to be around for a while. You have to have a network. Uh, can, you can't get in for the me, door. Uh -huh. I'll tell you for me, it was the song I produced called carry the flag. Uh -huh. which was a country song by an artist by the name of Dean Justin from Nashville. Uh -huh. Song came in at number eight the first week, went in the top five for three months. And that's when I, you know, found myself on Warner Brothers, technically WIA uh, distribution network. They wanted to see if I had any more hit records. And then that's when I signed Sounds of Blackness. But the difference is if you have your own record label, you've got to pay the freight, you know, the, the merchandising, the marketing and the promotion, but you're talking about making 80 cents on the dollar versus 12 cents on the dollar as an artist. So if, if you're right and you pick the right people and you've got the right song, there's a huge upside of profit that can be made. On the, if you, if you distribute it yourself or if you're right, right, right. Okay. Gotcha. You know, if, if, if you can do a deal with uh, universal music group or Warner brothers, which is we, or Sony, which is Orchard, or any of those, you know, really high-end uh, distribution networks that have huge market share throughout the international landscape. So we, uh, keeping along that theme, we talked earlier about uh, Sam Cooke, and he is uh, underappreciated, uh, underknown, if that's such a word, in Scrabble, uh, artists, uh, record exec, entrepreneur, where I'm getting to. In fact, I tell everybody he was Barry Gordy before there was a Barry Gordy. Uh, Absolutely. Know Barry, yeah, Barry go down in history, but they don't know how uh, great this guy was. Uh, but where I'm getting at is, and, and we know there have been a documentary on his death that really uh, raised some questions and suspicious about it, and uh, people think it has something to do with where he was trying to go in music. But where I want to go with that is that we do have a lot of artists, some artists coming along nowadays who are basically bucking the system 
uh, and doing their own thing. And I'm assuming it involved distribution. I'm thinking of artists like Master P, um, uh, even, even uh, Death Row and Shook Knight and those guys and P. Diddy. And uh, they basically seem like to me, at least on the outside looking in, not being inside in the music industry, seemed to me like they bucked the system and didn't go the standard route. Am I uh, uh, interpreting that correctly? Well, not to oversimplify it, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's fair to say they were drug dealers. Okay, Master P was a drug dealer. All those guys were in the drug trade. And then they went legit. But then they had lots of cash to work with. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the money side. The artistic side is that they were also musical geniuses. I mean, you look at the work that Master P did, it was amazing. He had a, an, an incredible long run, made hundreds of millions of dollars. And then the same thing with um, Jay-Z and Puff Daddies. You know, my business model, I have to raise money with investors and talk to banks and investment bankers, you know, it's it's been harder, but I still right. managed to make twenty two million dollars over you know a period of time, um, but have to pay that money back. Right. If you if you're on the other side of the coin and you don't have to pay it back, you go legit. I mean, it works. It keeps working. I mean, more stories can be told about how companies were financed using how we should we say um, special funding sources. Mm -hmm. uh, then we have time to go through. I mean, there's a lot of that, you know, takes place, but those are just the guys that admit it, you know. Right. Well, I'm hesitant to say, because I, I, I do have some other people who are pretty close to the hip-hop music industry, so I, I, I don't want to say too much, but I will just say that a lot of those guys are do have a lot of cash, and they are driving around in their Bentley's and Rolls Royce, and they do have record labels. And I, I, I'll just leave it at that. Well, I mean, now. I a lot of guys are just super talented, right? I mean, you take a guy like Jermaine Dupree. Now his his father, his uncle, was a you know, record executive, and you look at the work Jam and Lewis uh, have done. I mean. They're just freaking talented guys. I mean, yes, Babyface, yeah. they're just genius musicians. Prince was just a genius musician. So your artistic prowess can carve a pathway for you to succeed in. Those people who have to be more creative with their funding sources don't have access to those, those lines of, you know, cash. So there's no... Well, there's no wrong way to do it if you know what you're doing. But mm -hmm. Jammin' Lewis, Prince, L.A. Reid, Babyface, Pharrell Williams, they're just super talented. Dr. Luke is super talented. Um, Dr. Drake, super talented. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a great songwriter, like the guys I just mentioned, your, your writing craft, your production acumen is going to make space for you in the industry, period. So track them need to go forward. So yeah, and, and you're in an industry uh where let's say where it's not known to be for me at least, and you can correct me, shall I shall I say family friendly? That it can be. It can, it be? can be. Okay, Absolutely. I'm trying to, I I'm trying to think of 
uh, I, I, well, I don't want to use Jay Z and Beyonce. I'm trying to think of a a, a, a musical fan. Barry Gordy, I guess. Uh, family was pretty good family background, but you're saying it can be. So it's not all uh, rock and roll women and drugs and things like that. You know, the, I, I know that the industry has that reputation, but that's a very, very small subset of our industry. Okay, right. Most, and I mean like 85, 89%, it's just based on talent and hard work. You know, those guys that get in, you know, through other means, they got to do what they got to do. But now, if you if you take that or you put that aside and just say, well, what kind of music did Master P put out? He was a genius. Then he parlayed that into other projects and, you know, strategic partnerships and distribution deals. He's just a genius. He was always a genius. Yeah. So, you, I mean, I, I often would tell young kids, five, fifth grade to say 10th grade, if you're looking at a guy who's working in street trade situations, he's got to manage his, his inventory. He's got to be good at marketing. He's got to have quality control. He's got to have a good sales staff. You got to watch out for the police. These guys have the brain matter to do mm -hmm. big business deals. Yes, but, yes, yes. Uh -huh. But due to where they are in the you know landscape of life, I mean, no one gets to pick their address when they're born. You're, you're, right. you know, you're going to live where you live. So a lot of these guys, they, they have this uh, natural business acumen. They're just born with it. So when they get an opportunity to do something, um, you know, on the straight and narrow, they hit the ball out of the park. So, yeah, and, and let's talk a little bit about how to, and we're going to get to some inside story and get you off here so you can have, go have some supper and with your family. But uh, how has the technology, let's say the Internet, what's the main impact has it had on the music business? And I'm saying that from the sense that uh, it seems like you can bypass a lot of middlemen. Uh, That's what has happened. On the internet. And seem like you can, um, and I hear a lot about these mixtapes and things like that. You can raise funds and everything. So how has it changed the industry? And I, I guess what percentage of the industry has changed? Because I know there's still the old well, there's probably even some four albums out there and, and, and old distribution companies, old music companies. How has the internet basically changed the music industry? Well, in the 80s, early 90s, there were 50,000 songs released every week. Now, because of do-it-yourself protocols, uh, you're, you're looking at 60,000 records being released per day. Mm. per day mm. because you know a guy in london and a guy in omaha nebraska and a guy in new york they all have access to the same portals to distribute their music through itunes and um you know spotify so it's a crowded field it's it's easier to get in the business now but it's now harder to have a hit record because the competition is right intense and you know the pathways to getting a song played on the radio now has been replaced with can you get an influencer on TikTok to promote your song, and yeah. you know these things you know now 
that's low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. I can say, you know, you can reach somebody who's got 40 million followers and send your song to them. They're going to listen to it. Now you didn't have, I didn't have that access 30 years ago. You know, I had to go to New York and do all of these other things, trying to meet some of these heavy hitters to get them to listen to my music. Now you can basically get a song to anyone within three days. Right. So am I to assume the way it works is that I get a song to one of these influencers with 40 million followers. I, I'm making some of this stuff up. I'm not a social media kind of guy. Uh, if they like it, uh, their uh, followers. You yeah, you got to pay them. Yep, yeah, yeah. And they're not cheap. We're talking, you know, we're talking five figures here. Oh. Oh, you're talking 20, 40, 60, 250,000. You look. Some of the heavy hitter influences, their their clientele is Amazon, it's NBC, it's General Motors, it's Wonder yeah, Bread, know. it's Taco Bell. You know, so I then say, so, oh, well, you know what? I like your song and I like to promote your song and I'll promote your song for forty thousand dollars. Yeah. And yeah. but now she's got forty million followers. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, it can't be an easier way to get to forty million people than forty grand. Yeah, I'm uh, going kicking and screaming to this social media world, but I, I see it from an economic standpoint. But the way you describe that situation, one of the questions that comes to my mind uh, for someone like you who are in the business, if there's sixty thousand songs being released every day, how in the heck do you keep a track of it and i mean because i'm assuming that one of the things that you do is identify talent and yes is there so much talent out there that that it's hard to just sift through them all how do you what's your process of out of this these six thousand songs being released a day there's some talented artists out there that i would like to have on my label how do you go about even approaching such a sound like well, you know, I, mm-hmm. I've been in the business a long time, mm-hmm. and people go to my website lasallegabriel.com and they send me music. So I probably get approached by twenty people a day, okay. right, right? Probably three hundred people a day visit my website, and like today, I probably got twenty-five different artists sent me music that I haven't listened to. Most of it is not going to be professionally recorded or well written but the point is you only need one hit to change your lifetime mm-hmm. you know so i eventually i listen to everything that people send me i listen to it and then you know there's word of mouth i would call right. you hey you know anybody that does this i get on the phone i get on facebook i ask all my friends i go to twitter and talk to my fifteen thousand people whatever and say is anybody this that and the other and you'd be surprised who will contact you well, yeah, and, and once you start answering that, I realize you're the mountain that people come to, and <laughs> you don't need to go looking for artists uh, with your. Well, I mean, uh, back in the day, you you would go to you would go to nightclubs, right. and you would go to different places where you could hear people sing and perform, and but you know, to a lesser extent, you know, that's still available today in Minnesota. But for the most part, you're online listening to playlists off Spotify, and you're, I'm on TikTok every day, listening to people. You know, a couple hours a day, I'm on TikTok listening to what's in their top forty, what's in their top twenty. 
and uh, Sirius XM. I go through probably, I drive my kids and my wife crazy with this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in the car with me, be prepared to listen to 20 stations pretty much at the same time. Because, I mean, I'm going through everything. I go through the country station, the gospel station, the smooth jazz, the traditional jazz, uh, the hip-hop, the rap, the old school, you know, uh, a lot of the house music projects and dance music. I listen to everything. Yeah, so now let's talk a little bit about some because you work with some of everyone. I've seen Prince. I've seen Barry White. I've seen Anita Baker. I could keep going down the line. So why don't we talk about some of the people? Give us some, uh, we want, that's the word I'm looking for, positive kind of stuff, but interesting stories. Uh, Let's talk about Anita Baker. I know you did some work with her, and she's one of my uh, favorite singers. In fact, No One in the World is one of my favorite songs. It's my favorite Anita Baker song, No One in the World. And I just love the arrangement of that song. But and you're going to tell me you play guitar on that song because it's got some funky guitar stuff going on. Well, you know, I never had the opportunity to play on any of her songs, but she did hire me in the uh, early 2000s to join her on tour. And she called and she says, well, um, I called Prince and I called George Duke and I called um, two other, you know, Herbie Hancock, people who I didn't even realize knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm looking for this guy that's got to be the black Clapton. I want a, guy, a black guy who can <laughs> play like Eric Clapton. And three of the four guys recommended me. So she called me up one night and she says, well, I'd like for you to have me, uh, have you come out on my tour. And I agreed and I was there in two days. I said, well, what do you, what do you need me to do? She says, well, the entire orchestra is going to be dressed in gowns and tuxedos. I want you to sit off to the side of stage right. And every time I leave to change clothes, you're going to play a guitar solo until I get back. It was the best gig in the world. No other artist has ever treated me as well as Anita Baker. Then every night she took herself for steak dinner. And, you know, five-star, four-star hotels, First class travel on on airplanes. It was just fantastic. And I'm going to digress a little bit. We're going to come back about Barry White, Prince, and all those other guys. But I just thought, uh, what? Who is your all time? And I'm going to say all time favorite. I'm not going to say who's the best because I don't. I think a lot of times we get off track with that. Name me uh, one or two of your all time favorite guitarists and who uh, someone who had an influence on you. I started out listening to the Motown sound guitar players, never knew their names. Uh, as I grew as a, as a musician in my early teens, I listened to Carlos Santana. Oh, yeah. I listened to Jeff Beck. I listened to B.B. Yeah. King. Um, I listened to Jimi Hendrix. Now, Jimi Hendrix, I think I discovered him around 13, 14. Mm-hmm. I found his music impossible to play. Just, I couldn't hear the voicings. I couldn't get the tone. I must have worked on Jimi Hendrix for eight years before I could actually play a Hendrix tune to my standard of what it should sound like. And then I went all over the country uh, doing a Jimi Hendrix tribute. And I did that for probably five, six years. Made a lot of money doing that. And that was kind of how I you know, reintroduced myself into the industry. But those guys and then early on the gap band was very influential in my career 
that we had I had a chance to work with them for about seven years as well. Gap band, that's some funky music too, funky rhythm guitar. Well, let's talk about one other thing I was curious about. Uh, uh, guitar riffs, I think that's what they call them. Uh, am I using the right term there? Let's yeah, say riffs. Absolutely. Uh, now, normally when they talk about riffs, they talk about rhythm guitars, but I'm yes. assuming it also applies to bass guitars. Uh, but uh, where I'm getting to, just out of curiosity, what name is some of your favorite uh, riffs as far as the rhythm guitar uh, is concerned? David Williams. Who, who who plays uh, the guitar riff on Billie Jean? Oh yeah, okay. uh, is my favorite rhythm guitarist, and then also Paul Jackson Jr., who has played on an incredible number of top ten hit records. Uh, those are my two favorite rhythm guys, and then also Ray Parker, who was my mentor during high school. Oh okay, okay. Now you mentioned your uh, Jimi Hendrix, and we're gonna finish to go back to our inside story here uh, tour, uh, Jimmy. Jimmy would play with his teeth behind his back. Uh, I'm not. I'm assuming they didn't expect for LaSalle Gabriel to be doing things like that. Uh, or did they expect it? And if they did, did you accommodate them, LaSalle? Uh, not. Not only did they expect it, they paid me. Ah, and, uh, which <laughs> okay. is even more important. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. Well, no, I, I. I would play with my teeth behind my back. You know, when I auditioned for Vesta Williams, mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of hijacked her band again. I, I just had to have a tour. I called my dad. I said, look, I've been in L.A. now and I just can't get arrested. So he says, look, all the great gigs are taken. So you're going to have to take one. So I started going around to all the different uh, rehearsal halls, trying to find somebody that had a guitar player who was, you know, fireable. And right. so I got a chance to audition for her. And all the, you know, Vesta Williams' music was mostly ballads and up-tempo R&B. But I came in dressed like Jimi Hendrix. I had this pink Stratocaster. Um, I came in dressed just like Jimi Hendrix, had makeup on. And right in the middle of one of her songs, I just went crazy, you know, knocking over the, the uh, keyboard stands and the cymbal stands, played behind my teeth, played behind my back fell on the floor like I was on fire. And I just look, look they're not going to hire me anyway, but they're going to be talking about me tomorrow morning. That was my goal. Right, right. So then I look out in the audience and Vesta was laughing. She just could not stop laughing. She says, that's my new guitar player. And the manager went up to the previous guitar player and just fired him on the spot and said, hey, wow. look, we need you to do that every night. Wow. And Jimmy used to do things like break his guitar, set it on fire and everything. So I've, I've set many a guitar on fire. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit back to your artists that you work with. And the one that I, I, I really uh, want to know about is Barry White. Uh, I just I just thought he was a, a great uh, ranger, producer, singer, songwriter. Uh, the things he did with his orchestra. Uh, I didn't know too many people in R&B and pop music who had their own orchestra. Uh, tell me, son, how, how was your experience working with Barry White? Well, I had just finished an eight-month-long tour with uh, Vesta Williams. Mm -hmm. And so I had came home. I was in Glendale, California at the time, and I was just exhausted. Finally sleeping in my own bed for the first time in eight months. And about 
seven thirty in the morning, the phone rings. I mean, you don't call musicians at seven thirty in the morning and expect mm-hmm. them to answer. Right. At any rate, I answer the phone and this guy says, "Hey, this is Barry White," and I figured one of my buddies impersonating him, mm-hmm. so I hung up. So a few minutes later, he calls back. He says, "Hi, this is Barry White." And I says, oh, yeah, right. And then I hung up on him again. So he calls me three times. I hang up on him. Then about 30 minutes later, I get a call from the vice president's assistant at A&M Records. And she goes, oh, how was your tour? Was it good? Blah, blah, blah. Well, we would appreciate it the next time Barry White calls that you take the call. I was like, oh, my goodness. I have insulted one of the greatest musical producers of all time. So he calls me back. He was very kind about it. He laughed. We, we got a good laugh out of it. And he said, listen, you're going to be my new guitar player. I need you to be at my house in 30 minutes. And that was it. So I said, well, when is the audition? So there, there are no auditions. I'm picking you to be my new guitar player. So I, I worked as his assistant music director and uh, did a video with him and did several sessions as well. He became my mentor in the music industry for many years up until the time of his death. Wow. And when I hear Barry White and his orchestra, I'm thinking that there are several genius uh, rhythm guitarists uh, in his orchestra. Uh, Am I correct in that? And is that such a thing as a first guitarist in an orchestra like Barry White? You mean kind of like horns? Yeah. Well, uh you know, that was the only thing about his orchestra that I wasn't a great fan of. Sometimes there were four guitar players. Mm-hmm. But when you listen to a Barry White song, those guitar parts overlap and one person cannot play them all anyway. Right. I got you. Got you. So I'd say the majority of the concerts I did with Barry, uh, there were three guitar players. And for the most part, that covered all the bases, but every once in a while he'd, he'd have a fourth guitar player on stage. It was fantastic. And, and it, it taught me to listen in a much more intricate, precise manner of the way uh, rhythm section parts are put together. Okay, and, and I'm, I, this is the last uh, inside story type of question I'm going to ask, but you basically, when you move to Minneapolis, you move to the Minneapolis music scene and, you know, we tend to think of Prince, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Time, the Time, Morris Day, and, and oh, and my high school classmate, good friend, uh, Alexander O'Neill and that Sherelle and that uh, crowd. How did you, uh, give me your, let's say, I would say fondest memories of the Minneapolis sound and the crew once you move here. Uh, from uh, uh, Detroit, I think it was. Uh-huh. I, I would say working at Flight Time, you know, for a period of about over a seven-year period, I, I performed on several projects that were either produced by Jam and Lewis or executive produced by Jam and Lewis. I mean, I just enjoyed everything. I liked doing the work for Prince. Prince invited me to tour with him twice. Uh, I declined those offers. Um, and then we, you know, we tried to come together on a deal for me to buy his building and we weren't able to make it work, but that kind of set up the table for me to buy flight time. But the, the club scene, you know, people like Jellybean Johnson, Mm -hmm. those guys from, you know, MPG, just all fantastic musicians. 
really nice guys, very down to earth. Even to this day, they're just fantastic guys. The kind of people that no matter what genre you were working in, if they were playing with you on stage, you had a good, you know, uh, rapport with them. Wow. So let's uh, get ready to wrap things up here. Uh, first of all, I'm thinking about the young, let's say 12-year-old down in his basement right now writing music and want to one day be rich and famous in the music industry. And uh, we know how what the probabilities there are. But there are certain things you have to do regardless, even though your chances uh, are slim. What, would, what advice would you give a talented uh, person, young person out there nowadays, and they're dedicated, they're willing to put in all the work, and we do know that there's no guarantee in life or anything, and especially something like the music industry. Is there any advice you would share with, with, with uh, people who wants to, who have a dream of getting into the music industry besides uh, have a plan B? <laughs> well, you know, in much the way that um, I have groomed and mentored my children that are in the music industry. My daughter Lauren's a great songwriter and singer. My son Grant uh, just a fabulous songwriter and producer. They should start out taking piano lessons. I don't care what you're going to do in the industry. If it's going to be from the stage or in the studio, you need to learn to play the piano. You don't need to be the next Herbie Hancock, but you mm -hmm. need to know your scales and your mm -hmm. chords. So I would tell any person that has um, aspirations of being in the music industry as either a songwriter, a producer, or an artist, they should take piano lessons. It's the best $100 a month you're going to be able to get. And so that will allow you to hear the difference between good music and bad music and absolute crap. A lot mm. of stuff is just garbage. I mean, I get stuff from people all the time where I can tell the guy's tone deaf. He can't tell he's in the wrong key and he's singing with passion, but he's in the wrong key of the song that he wrote himself. You don't want to be that guy. Now, learning to play, play the piano is going to make you a better songwriter, a better singer, and then help you discover ways uh, to write music that you would not have at your disposal without that musical acumen. Well, a couple, a couple of last questions here. First of all, have you ever written a song and upon hearing the final product, you decided it wasn't good and it ended up on the cutting floor? Every day. Oh, okay. Good, good, good. Uh, <laughs> Every day I come in, I tell a guy, I says, that's not a hit. Start over. You know? Wait a minute. I'm talking about one of your songs, not someone else's song. You've done that with one of your songs. Oh, no, right? every song I've I, ever written has been fabulous. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I figured that. Uh, and then uh, your wife, is, is she still singing? Uh, you met her when you met her. Well, she was my wife does sing, but, you know, she was um, actually the first female black broadcaster at pop radio uh, back in her, you know, back in the 90s. And so, yes, she can sing. She has always has all these different talents as a singer, as a uh, assistant director out at Paisley Park. And then she worked at KMOJ. She worked at uh, KDWB and a lot of rock stations. Let's see, what was your name back then? Uh, she had a stage De name. De her, Deanna Kelly. That was her. Deanna Koo, Deanna Klug, Deanna Kelly. And then, you know, the only last name that matters is mine. So, but 
she was fabulous and she was a trailblazer because I mean, if you think back in the eighties, there were no black DJs on KDWB or WLOL. Right. 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 It had, had, she was the first. Well, I have to interject that, uh, in spite of all your accomplishments and achievement in the music industry, and I'm like this with most things I do, most people, what I admire most is you're a family man and uh, you raise your children, et cetera, became a role model for them and they're following in your footsteps in the music industry. And I'm like that. I don't care what you did. I don't care if you're a movie star or a mechanic. Uh, those are the things uh, I admire in people most of all. So uh, tell us what you're currently doing, LaSalle, and what you're planning on doing in the future. Uh, we just built a 15,000 square foot uh, recording studio in Maple Grove. It's a $5 million building and it has three recording studios. It's a state-of-the-art super analog facility. And going forward over the next three quarters, we're going to be investing an additional $2 million to upgrade the system for a 5,000 square foot expansion for post-production for television and film. And that's at huge profit margins upwards of 40% of the post-production facilities in California went out of business during the pandemic. And we have, we're in this cycle now that I like to call quarantainment. You know, there's more uh, television and film creative content being viewed now than at any time in history. So there's not enough post-production facilities in North America. So we believe that the moment we have this additional layer of services to our service model that uh, it will be highly lucrative. Wow. And uh, I'm assuming you're doing some fundraising now to uh, help complete the studio. Is that uh, correct? It is correct. We've had a robust uh, history over the last seven, eight quarters of raising money. And uh, there's we turn down more money than we take in. We, we want the right people at the right time. Uh, we're looking for investors that can add some intrinsic value to, you know, what, what they bring to the table in addition to the cash, you know, some political alliances, uh, market share, uh, knowledge. We want people that are smarter than we are. That's always a good thing. So we're going to end it on a couple of things. First of all, we talked about the what you're currently doing in your future. What about the music industry? And let's, let's talk, not talk current. Where do you see the music industry going, uh, given the technology, given the culture, given everything that's going on out there now? Well, you know, my father used to say that a circle had 360 points on it, but that one and 360 were right next to one another. So I believe we've seen the apex of easy money in the music industry. You have people like um, Ellie Mae and her and Bruno Mars. You're starting to hear real music on the radio and it's becoming more pervasive every day. And I really think that we're, we've reached a point where someone's coming in with a sample and a drum beat. That guy is, it's going to be difficult for him to ring to win song of the year at the Grammys because you know, We've let we've lift the lift the rockets now for you to come out and do some different type of music, which is a throwback to the seventies and eighties, when mm -hmm. you didn't have sampling, you didn't have all the fantastic technology that you have right now. 
I have guys come in my building every day that are amazing musicians from all over the country. And that's what we're looking for. Well, a good place for us to end and for this last question I have for you, LaSalle. Uh, do you... I'm assuming that one of these days you're going to need a trombone player out there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, you know, I might try to dust my trombone off. You're a trumpet player, and you know the importance of the, uh, what is it, armature? When you're uh, a brass player, I've lost that. Yes. Well, uh, you know, you never know. I I see people all the time uh, when I... um, went to my high school reunion about three years ago. There was mm-hmm. a guy who played saxophone back in the school band days. And he says, hey, man, call me sometime for a session. About six weeks later, I called him up. And I said, look, you got a song for you to play. He goes, no, you're kidding. He said, no, you say you're still playing, right? He said, yes, I am. So I'm sending you the tracks. And we, we, got, we got him on the song. So, you know, be careful what you ask for. You might get it. Uh, I, I am going to go out. Get your phone number. <laughs> I am going to go out and try to play a trombone. My niece was taking trombone lessons in high school about 10, 20 years ago, and I picked it up. I could not play a note. Uh, I remember. Horns uh, are coming back, though. Horns yeah. are coming oh, back. Oh, yeah, yes, they are. More and more yeah. And our band, our band director was a trumpet player. And this is this is dating myself. Back then, I think it was the high C note that everybody was trying to hit. I think it was. And there was things like triple tongue and then things like that. I'm quite sure uh, a professional like you still remember how to do some of those things and hit those high C's, I'm assuming, that LaSalle. Well, you know, my youngest boy, Liam, just got a trumpet for uh-huh. Christmas and just bought him a mouthpiece about two weeks ago. So he's taking lessons. But, um, yes, I mean – there has been no no other time in the last 20 years where real musicians have an opportunity to be recorded on top 40 records. The time is now. Well, I'm going to let you go. The music industry has always been fascinating to me. I, I know the competition out there. Anyone who can achieve in that industry, we know they had to pay some dues. There had to be some tenacity involved in that. So Absolutely. I really admire what you're doing. In fact, uh, I'm such a music uh, interest, aficionado, I think, uh, music inter- so interested in music. I'm going to have you back and talk some more things and more details and things. And uh, sure. I just looking back on my uh, early years, I love academics. I love sports, but I also had a great uh, love for music and what can that can do for us and how it uh, soothes the savage beast, as they say. So once again, thank you for coming on. I uh, really admire all the achievement that you've made. I know how tough it is. I got some idea. Uh, you know, I mean, playing first trombone in high school is not compared to anything to what you do. And But I just got some idea for, you know, music theory and and, and, and all the things that go into what you're doing and the talent. The well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of the public schools now have removed music from the school. Yeah. And you know, so we did, we're in the... Um, early stages of starting a new music foundation a partnership through uh, guitar center and it's the LaSalle Gabriel music foundation. And we're going to be supplying instruments for, um, at risk children, um, you know, Mexicans, Asians, African Americans, and just giving them these grants where they can 
have access to music, have access to music lessons. And I mean, we have to do it because yes, yes we do. The teachers unions and the, you know, all this politics that goes on. I don't know what happened. Yeah, critical but I was race in third theory. Grade. Yeah, huh? go right. ahead. Huh? I was in third grade. All you had to do is go to your teacher and say, I want to play the trumpet. Right. And they sent you down to the auditorium. You sign a piece of paper. You took the instrument home. Nowadays, right. you know, they have the uh, music teacher as a substitute English teacher. Well, you know, I go even further. I, I just believe everybody should try to play some musical instrument at some time in their lives. Uh, if you had to pick one, I would agree with you. It should be the piano. But uh, in fact, I don't understand it. My thing was, I saw other people doing it, and it fascinated me, and I had to try it myself. So, and I tell people around me who don't try music, I don't understand how you can sit around and watch people doing this and don't want to try it yourself, but that's just my personality. So, once again, thank you. Let's say I like the idea about the foundation. I'll be following up with you on that. Uh, I know some uh, very uh, potential students for what you're doing. And so we'll work on that and see, can that we get our people reinterested in music, just like we Absolutely. I want to get them, get them reinterested in baseball. But that's a whole nother subject. Thank you very much, sir. Look to see, talk to you soon. Maybe sit down and have a bite to eat with you and talk about some of the other great things you're doing and how we can use that to leverage uh, 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 some positive thing for our children in these uh, challenged environments. So once again, everyone, uh, LaSalle Gabriel, uh, I call him the music man and uh, achieved a lot of great things. Go out and look him up on the uh, internet uh, and keep an eye out for some of the new music that he's going to be producing for us. So let's say I once again, thank you very much. Uh, look forward to seeing you soon and doing some things in the community with you. So good night. Fantastic. Say hi to the wife and the family for me. And beautiful kids that I much. met Saturday. Okay. All right. All thank right. you very much. LaSalle. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Uh, probably went on a little long there, but he's done so many great things that I have a hard time weeding it out. It's a favorite subject of mine. So uh, thanks very much for watching uh, this edition of Bright Lights by Lacey Johnson. Once again, remember to go out to LaceyJohnson.com and support the podcast and, and, and what we're doing here. And uh, subscribe. Uh, uh, click the bell for notification. And give us some feedback on how we're doing. Uh, we know we always have room for improvement. We always be striving to do that and never take you, our audience, for granted. So good night. Uh, have a great evening and look forward to seeing you next week, uh, talking to you next week. Thanks a lot, everybody. <laughs>